If you read through 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, not just the few verses we read in 9, but all of 8 and 9, and you might have to just forget for a moment that an apostle wrote them and that it's in our Bibles, you might be in for a surprise, a pleasant surprise. Because not only does Paul use his normal biblical vocabulary, he uses beautiful words, sensuous words even. It's really obvious in the Greek. I mean, some of those words rhyme, and some of them roll off the tongue, and they're just absolutely gorgeous. The biblical scholar Michael Gorman says that it's almost as if Paul wrote for a Bach aria more so than a seminary textbook. And even in English, there's some beautiful words in these two chapters. I made a list. Sharing, generous, thanks, blessing, bountiful, and of course, grace. One of Paul's favorite words. He uses it ten times in these two chapters, even though it gets translated lots of different ways. Beautiful words. Missing from the list, and definitely not a beautiful word, is sloth. Sloth. It doesn't even sound beautiful. If you Google the term, the first thing that comes up is a furry mammal that hangs upside down, is decidedly not beautiful, and moves as slow as molasses. That's not the sloth I'm talking about. Sloth was one of the seven deadly sins. In the late 4th century, early 5th century, when not only the congregations but even the priests were largely illiterate, they came up with these seven sins that if you could memorize these things and avoid them, you could save your soul. These were deadly. Pride and envy and gluttony and lust and adultery and covetousness and sloth. It gets translated, sloth does, as laziness. But that, that hardly seems like a deadly sin. I mean, compared to all these other things, to throw in laziness? How can that be, how can that be deadly? Here's the way I think about it. I'm not sure, first of all, that laziness is the best translation. But here's the way I think about it. Have you ever said to yourself or to your spouse, you know, I think this Saturday I'm going to try and clean out the basement or the garage, whatever it is. It's that little word, I'm going to try. Sometimes the hardest thing is just getting started. Overcoming the inertia. And that's what sloth is. It's a spiritual inertia, an inability to, to really act. In fact, Fred Craddock put it this way, sloth sounds like lying too long in the bathwater. But really, the Greek word akedia means, I don't care. I don't care. The ultimate insult, I don't care. It turns out that caring is at the very heart of these two chapters in 2 Corinthians. Here's kind of the back story. And it's easy to miss this. 
Whereas Jesus spent almost his entire life in small rural villages around, and mostly among Jews, the Apostle Paul spends most of his time in large metropolitan cities, and mostly among Gentiles. And what had happened is kind of a tale of two cities. Paul is writing to Corinth, which in our day would be located in Greece, but he's writing about Jerusalem down in Israel. Israel had had a famine. Jerusalem was experiencing a famine, and the saints there were starving. And so Paul writes to the church here about the church there, about the saints there. He wants them to care, and what he sees is maybe there's an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone, to not only feed the hungry, but to also heal the divide between Jew and Gentile, although I really don't like that metaphor of killing two birds. How about he sees a way to feed two birds with one seed, sharing. The question, though, that he has is, what's the chances that people in this city will care about people in this city? I don't know if you've ever flown international, but if you have, especially into the Middle East or even into Europe, and they'll project on that screen or on your monitor, there'll be a map of that part of the world. And and it's always amazing to us Americans where everything is spread out to see that you could be from one country to another just like this. They're all so close. And it's true of Greece and Israel, but not in Paul's day. The distance between Jerusalem and Corinth and Greece was like... It's the other side of the world. How will he get them to care? Well, the problem is that it is so easy for caring to be determined by proximity. You know, it's to draw a circle around a small group, a small place, not to, not to extend it beyond who we are, where we are. I remember, and I said it even just a couple of weeks ago in a Monday night class, James Forbes, pastor of Riverside Church, commented on that image of Hurricane Katrina filling the radar screen and the Gulf of Mexico. Forbes said, that image of the radar was a CAT scan of America's soul and we were found bankrupt because we decided that oh, you mean there there are poor people among us? But they're down there. They're not here. Sloth, spiritual laziness, this I don't care attitude is drawing a circle. Well, it's saying, I've got my mask. I can't worry about everybody else's mask. Or it's, it's hearing about unemployment figures and saying, well, I know there are a lot of people without jobs. Thank God I've got one. It's a kind of, I'll take care of myself, but I won't have to worry about the other. Just this past week, I finished a new book called The Myth of the American Dream by Daniel Mayfield. Daniel Mayfield is a writer, and she was on a train. She tells this story about, she, she lives in Portland, and she was on a train from Portland to Seattle. And she was going to a writer's workshop, and she was so excited because for a little while, at least, she could ignore the suffering of the world. So she's on this train. She's got her journal. She's just journaling along. 
and then the train comes to a stop and the announcement is made, there's an, an incident up ahead, we'll, we'll be delayed. And so she journals, it's a little bit inconvenient. And when they start back up, the train very slowly moves through. And there are black SUVs and police cars and crime scene tape. And then she sees it. A severed leg and blood everywhere. And she Googled it later. A man had committed suicide jumping in front of the train. And she looked back at her journal. It was at that moment that she had written, I'm so tired of noticing. I'm just tired of noticing. And we get that. I mean, how many newscasts can we watch? How many internet reports can we read about this pandemic? We get tired of noticing. For Paul, noticing the problem, the famine down in Israel, is the first step, but it is not the ultimate solution. Now, I have to tell you that his strategy is not one that we approve of in seminary. In essence, what he does in the two chapters, which most scholars think are two separate letters that got put together, is he kind of plays the one off the other. He says to the church in Corinth, you know, I was just bragging about you the other day to the people up in northern Greece in those cities. And, and then, of course, he says, you know, and they're really generous up there. You, you get what he's doing? He's, he's playing them off of each other. Never in a million years can I imagine us doing that. I mean, there's no way. Carla's going to call somebody up. We got your pledge card. Thank you so much. But you know, I was just bragging about how generous you are to so-and-so. And, oh, did I tell you how much they're giving? No. No, we would never do that. And it's complicated why Paul does. But here's what I think is spot on. And that is Paul's cure for this sloth. Giving. Giving. Now, I am not a televangelist, even if you're watching on a screen. It's pretty clear. I don't have the hair for it. I don't have the bank account for it. I don't go around the country in a jet, and if you'll send in an offering, none of that. But giving gets us outside of ourselves and actually helps someone. And, and, and it can be giving of time. I mean, you can mow your neighbor's lawn because, well, he hurt his back and he's not doing well. Or you can take a casserole to that poor single mom who's got two kids at home and she's trying to work and she's about to pull her hair out. But you can also give money. Giving makes a difference. It's a way of saying, I won't hang on to this. Now, Paul's really clear. It can't be under compulsion. You know, nobody can twist your arm, make you do it. In fact, he says it should be cheerful. I mean, it should feel, it should feel right. I, I think it was maybe two weeks ago we showed that video, the now more than ever video that Laura put together. It's just, it's just breathtaking. I mean, I am moved every time I've watched it, and I've watched it several times. There's so many beautiful images of our families and our kids in this place. But the one thing that really hits me every time I watch it, every time, it's when that food is being delivered 
to the hungry. In this time of pandemic, we are coming face to face with economic suffering. Just this week I read in the Christian Century that food banks in the U.S. are experiencing lines like they've not seen since the Great Depression. That much demand. And the director of the U.N. World Food Program, he estimates conservatively that 250 million people will be on the brink of starvation in the coming year. Giving is a chance to help heal the world, to make a difference. So what Paul does is in chapter 8, he tells a story. Sort of. What I mean is he quotes one little verse from a story that's in Exodus chapter 16 in hopes that the one little verse will trigger the memory of this story. And maybe you've heard this one before, but maybe not. And it's, it's bigger than this that I'm telling. I'm just going to tell a little piece of it. But the Israelites have been brought out of Egyptian bondage and slavery. They've, they've been released and they're following Moses through the wilderness. But of course, there's nothing to eat in the wilderness. And so God provides this, this dewy substance that comes up in the mornings like dew, and it's kind of porridge-like, and it's called manna, which in Hebrew is great. It means, what, what is this? <laughs> but it's food, and they can survive. But here's the catch, and this is Paul's point in quoting it. If they went out in the morning and collected a little more than they needed, you know, if they hoarded it, it would rot. But if they only collected what they needed, everybody was fine. Paul uses that to talk about fairness. In fact, a word that's used throughout these chapters and isn't always translated that way is justice. It's one of his favorite words. There should be fairness. So taking a cue from Paul... Let me tell you one more story. Last Sunday, Glenn Crocker emailed me and Carla with a link to a podcast. It was one of NPR's podcasts, and this episode was called Hotel Corona. It's not about some Mexico resort with beer bottles and lime wedges. This is Hotel Corona as in the virus. And it turns out it's about a hotel in Jerusalem, that city Paul was concerned about. When the virus outbreak happened in Jerusalem, the authorities isolated people who had COVID-19 and put them in hotels, which became makeshift hospitals, and which, of course, were pretty much empty because no tourists were there. Well, eventually, there were so many that they could start to segregate them into people groups, but not initially, not in Hotel Corona. In Hotel Corona, there was incredible diversity. Not just Jew, but Muslim. Not just faithful religious Muslims and Jews, but secular as well. And within Judaism, some secular, some religious, but some orthodox and some ultra-orthodox. And normally in Israeli society, these groups are all separate but they were in this hotel together. 
And they, some of them, filmed things with their iPhones, and it went viral. And the next thing you know, there was this reality TV show that all of Israel was watching because they couldn't believe how they were getting along. Unlike most reality TV, they were actually getting along. But then the biggest test of all came. Passover. Jewish holiday. Usually in homes, but now it was going to be in a hotel. In their dining room. And normally it would be very segregated. But now all of these folks were together. Noam, one of the characters there, she said, I was so excited. And then I went into the dining room. And someone had constructed a wall, floor to ceiling. And she said, this is what we live with all the time, the walls throughout Israel. And here it was again. She thought about moving it, but she realized it would just cause tension and the world was watching, or at least Israel was. But then something amazing happened. Amran... Orthodox Jew and his wife, Gina, they decided the wall comes down. And so they started to do it, but they couldn't do it. And so they called on others and everybody agreed. And 180 people took down the wall, raised their glasses, and celebrated together. I think Paul would like that. You know... Paul writes about that meal, the Passover one, but also the one that we get from it, the one we eat at this table, the Lord's Supper, or as he calls it, communion. That's one of Paul's words. Although actually, the Greek word, it could just as easily be translated sharing. Sharing. That seems like a good word about now, don't you think? 